This is Lifting the Lid. Conversations with fascinating people living life on their terms. Our next guest requires no introduction. Welcome to a new episode of Lifting the Lid. If you're in need of a laugh, I've got the perfect guests, Troy and Sarah Swindles-Gross from Humor Australia. Hello, guys. Hi, Dean. Hey, Dean. Thank you. Uh, now, let's start at the end. Tell me a little bit about Humor Australia. Start at the end. Wow. Wow, is there something you know that we don't? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Humor Australia started for us over 10 years ago now, and we were working in the media, and we were working at a job we absolutely loved that uh, miraculously we were good at. <laughs> we were number one in our field, uh, working in breakfast radio, this was, and earning a whole lot of money. And we were the most miserable we'd ever been in our lives. And without going into too much detail, it was a really toxic working environment. And we didn't have any of the coping skills that we needed to be able to interpret those challenges through a more positive lens. And we started to think, wow, if people like us can lose their sense of humour, people that have worked in the humour industry all of their lives, how are other people out there surviving? And a lot of research showed us that many people just aren't. Mm. Yeah, and I love the way you say that, you know, this all started 10 years ago. Our business has actually been around for 25 years. Good Lord. It's, it's changed its name and I think it's changed what it does over that time. Well, no wonder I'm exhausted. <laughs> 25 years of laughing. My goodness, anyone would be exhausted. Well, Zara's family had a comedy restaurant in Brisbane and that's where we met. We met working together and um, we worked in that business for seven or eight years and, and in various roles and in the show itself and that's where we both learned stand-up comedy. When that closed, that led to The Breakfast Radio, which we did for five years and then the last 11 have been sort of in this corporate realm as Humour Australia. And it's funny, isn't it? Because you look back on your life and, and often things, you know, look a little sparkly, a little better in hindsight than they were at the time. But we're very grateful for our time in Breakfast Radio as well because we learnt so much we're, and we love that job. Uh, but more so, I think, for the comedy club because it was such an environment of love, support, collaboration, creativity. You know, we were always growing people in that business, we would have staff that would pop in on their days off and say, I was just in the area. How can I help? What can I do? Do you want me to set up the restaurant? Um, so it was a really big sort of family environment. And we kind of thought that every business would be like that, just mm. a bigger, more cashed up version of that. And <laughs> it's really not. No, no, it isn't. It's so funny you say that. I mean, a lot of comedians, if I may call you comedians, and Judd Apatow was one as well who talked about growing up in those types of comedy clubs. So you mentioned it there, but just take me into that a little deeper and how that, I guess, shaped who you are today. What I think was great about that experience is that um, because it was a, a theatre restaurant venue, we actually did the same show for a year. So you would operate uh, four or five nights a week most of the year round, and then at Christmas you'd run seven nights a week. So you got a lot of opportunity to really understand how temperature made a difference, how drunk your patrons were made a difference, uh, how a pause and a bit of dialogue made a difference, how a joke could be could literally kill one night and die the next. So, you know, you learnt a lot about technique, I think, uh, through repetition and doing it again and again and again. But, but I think more than that, we, we learnt how important it is to make someone's day. And in that venue, we had a philosophy that but life's kind of tough for a lot of people. In fact, our motto at that club was life's tough, laugh hard. And we knew that if we could get them in for one night and just help them to forget about the challenges they were going through, give them a little bit of hope, then um, maybe we could make their life just a little bit better. And we always say, you know, if you can joke, you can cope. 
So I think it was a remarkable experience in wanting to make people happier. And, and that's certainly our philosophy in life today as well. And I think part of that is, you know, the hospitality approach of we want to provide good service and give people a good time whilst they're with us. But also coming from the comedy bent, I think both these things sort of fused together and gave us an understanding of positive psychology before there was a thing that mm. was recognised as positive psychology. Mm. Within your business at the moment, what gets you happy, excited every day to go into work, bouncing out of bed every day? Jeez, that might be overstating it a little bit. <laughs> uh, but I think again, it's it's the results that you create for people. So part of our business, as well as hosting the big conferences and, and delivering keynotes, we run masterclasses and workshops in storytelling. And one of the most satisfying things I think that we do is helping people to really stand in their power and communicate their ideas, their ideals, their insights in a more interesting way and for the greater good. And nothing makes us happier than seeing people that believe that they're not great communicators actually become kind of awesome in that field. And mm. I think w one of the happiest days on the job of late, would you agree, Troy Boy, is the Stand Up For Yourself program. Yeah, we have a thing called Stand Up For Yourself, which we work with corporate groups. And basically, they learned how to improve their communication style by learning stand-up comedy. Uh, so when they start the program, they think it's just a communication program, they show up, and then we kind of inform them, hey, you're actually going to learn how to present a five-minute stand-up comedy routine about your life in front of a live audience, and for most of them, that's the first time they've ever done anything like that, and it's absolutely terrifying, and they all say, there is no way we're doing that. Yeah, but it's kind of <laughs> remarkable. So everyone's got it in them to be funny. That's the, the miraculous part of this program. And it's really not about creating comedians. It's about giving people an experience where they wake up the next day and say, oh, my God, I did it. You know, what else have I been telling myself that I can't do? And I have to question everything else. Mm, it's kind of like um, all the thrill of a skydive with less chance of death. <laughs> to some people, I think it would be scarier, wouldn't it, to stand up? Well, weirdly, you know, in the couple of programs we've run, we've had people that have come to us and manifested illnesses that just didn't exist. You know, one girl ended up <laughs> in hospital because she said, my arm's paralysed, I'm having a stroke, I don't know what's going on. And the doctors had to go, there's nothing wrong, it's all in your mind, you just don't want to go to work today. <laughs> so we said, come and do your stand-up, and miraculously, it was better after that. Yeah, and you know, it's that critical moment where they walk on stage, you've got to actually complete the task of getting on stage and delivering the, the stand-up mm. to get the reward. Um, but that moment where they tell their first joke and it lands and the audience is with them, you can just see a whole lifetime of self-doubt disappear and suddenly it opens up these new portals of possibility and potential where they have to start going, wow, I'm, I'm capable of so much more than I thought I was. And we're still in touch with all of the people who've gone mm. through that program and for all of them, without exception, their life has stepped up. Their results have changed. Mm. Um, you know, they've chosen a better way in their life. They're more mm. adventurous in life. And they're close up. They, they, even though they've moved on to different roles in different businesses, they're still a tribe. They're still connected by this one experience mm. where they were all completely out of their comfort zone. So there's a great amount of love and respect that comes out of that program as well. So to answer your original question, that fuels us up. That that gives us um, a great deal of joy. We like to say, floats our goat. <laughs> Look, I really love that. One of my big things at the moment is about challenges and fears and um, I guess overcoming those. Everyone's got them. Do you reckon that's a huge part of what we do? We've stopped challenging ourselves or we're letting fear take over? 
Yeah, I don't know that you ever overcome it. To, to be honest with you, you know, I'm I'm riddled with fears. I, <laughs> I and this is someone who you know last weekend was standing on a stage in front of five thousand people. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm always scared. I'm always you know I have a lot. We, we again we've got a lot of catchphrases, but we tend to think that worry is misery without a result. It does nothing. It's a pointless process, and yet to avoid it is is kind of challenging. And it's interesting, mm. you know, because you set yourself a challenge that you're scared of. And what a lot of people do is it just becomes too insurmountable and so they kind of give up or they decide that they haven't got it in them to be able to fulfil that challenge and for a second they feel relief. They go, oh, I don't have to do it, isn't that wonderful? And then a second later they feel great disappointment because actually we're born for expansion. We're on the planet because we're here to grow and test ourselves and push ourselves and I think... And anything great that was ever achieved by the human race was, you know, born out of challenge. Yeah. It was born out of adversity. And in spite of fear... So I, I don't think you ever mm. overcome it. I just think you perform regardless. You work through it, yeah. And and I think over time you develop skills that assist you in that. Mm. That's, that's probably the best thing we could hope for. Yeah, you can diminish the fear. You can give it a, even a number. Mm. You know, you can feel like sometimes it's a 9 out of 10, but if you actually are logical about that, you would say, you know what, even, let's go back to the stand-up example. I, I'm expected to get on stage on Friday night in front of 200 of my peers and talk about myself and make them laugh. Now, that can feel like a 9 out of 10 in terms of pressure, drama, you know, possible humiliation. But actually, if you were logical, it's probably a 1 or a 2 on the life scale. It's really mm. not a big deal. So what's the worst-case scenario? Yep, you humiliate yourself on stage. Will you get over that? Yeah. Could you grow from it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Have you got the opportunity to maybe look back and laugh at that situation? Absolutely. So it's learning that you can actually move yourself along the emotional scale, I think, yeah, um, up or down, but you're in control. And, you're you're and, the creator. And that's interestingly where I think uh, comedy and positive psychology kind of overlap too because they say that comedy is pain plus time, right? So, mm. um, yeah, yeah. There, there's certain parallels that I love. And I actually love uh, how comedians talk about serious issues with great humour and humility. I heard a um, podcast on the little Dum Dum show with Lawrence Mooney and they were talking about um, various different you know, comedians who had essentially tried to commit suicide. But the way they just talked about it amongst themselves just put this great light and humour on it and didn't make it such a dirty secret anymore. It just kind of uh, loosened the load. That's, yeah. the, that's the point of comedy. You know, Comedy isn't really about clowning around on stage and pulling funny faces and... You know, pulling rubber chickens out of your pants. Although it can be. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you're into. Yeah. Comedy is, um, it's serious business a lot of the time. And particularly when, I guess, even vaudeville. So if you go back to the early part of last century, yeah, it was about allowing people some escape from their lives to have a laugh you know things were difficult when you go to the 50s and you think about the comedians that were big around those times you know like Yelene Bruce's and then on from that um uh Bill Hicks Hicks and and Sam Kennison and um the people that are referred to as comedians comedians yeah these are all people that pushed the envelope and made us think about serious topics in a different way and by talking about it you diffuse its energy you diffuse the mystery surrounding it and suddenly you shine a light on an issue and you say, it's okay for us to talk about it. And the more you talk about it, the more okay you get with it. Yeah, Un- unless true. you get arrested with like um, Lenny Bruce did. Yeah, and I think the other thing <laughs> that, those, that those greats had in common was... Uh, oh, that a good one, I thought there, sorry. This is pre-coffee for Trump. <laughs> oh, oh, no. uh, so the other thing those greats had in common was the intellect, right? They were... Mm. 
intellectually quite intelligent people who wanted to challenge what society was offering mm. at that moment in time. And I think uh, comedy at the highest level does require intellect because it requires you to not be so determinate in your in your stand in your point of view you need to be able to move points of view very quickly mm. and i think the best comedians can do that and they can encourage mm. an audience to do that mm. when when laughter occurs it's because for that moment in time we all are looking at things the same way that you are looking mm. at things it's agreement so yeah there's a beauty in it and a power in it that i think is amazing mm. and i guess in the same way that a songwriter you know writes to express their feelings a comedian is, is not a happy, floaty, you know, daisy-loving human most of the time. They're pissed <laughs> off, angry, uh, dark souls. Intense. Yeah, that, that are going, this is stupid. Why do we do it this way? Why, what's this about? And so there's a, a, a degree of inquiry and questioning and demanding that we get to some answers. Mm. And I guess that that beats complacency any day. Mm. And storytelling, I'm assuming, and which brings me, I guess, to my next question, which uh, you guys have on your website, which is why do we believe in the power of stories to transform lives do you know what it says next after that and can you tell me a little bit about it mm. <laughs> well, from our website are you just quoting our website yes yes i am quoting your website is that and- never looks at our website if she can avoid it <laughs> hang on troy's getting it up right now but i'll tell you why we do believe in storytelling we believe and oh i know what's on the website two stories is that the one it's stories spark our imagination stir our emotions Stimulate learning and persuade action. Mm, And I probably would have said positive action too because action without intention is uh, can be catastrophic, but mm. <laughs> action with the right intention can create good results. But we believe that all happiness and success comes down to storytelling and in particular two stories, the stories we choose to share with others and the stories we tell ourselves. Mm. And everything that's going through our minds, everything we believe about ourselves is a story. You know, every uh, challenge that we encounter in life, we need to be able to frame that up and interpret that and share that in a way that isn't debilitating, that doesn't stop us from wanting to try new things, but in fact frames it in a way that inspires the next step in our lives or inspires somebody else to be able to take that step. So I think the more we can focus on becoming better storytellers, uh, the more powerful we become as human beings. And, and a lot of people underestimate their ability to be able to craft a great story, and yet we've all got a story to tell. Mm. And it's all you know, hardwired into our DNA, that love of story. You know, Before there was written history, there was verbal history, and, and stories were passed down that way. So whether we like it or not, we get drawn into other people's story, and, and we're certainly affected by our own. Now, I'm just going to... Go back a little bit now, like to where it began, probably for you, I'll start with Troy. I want to know because I grew up in the country and every year we would go to the Gold Coast. That was our family holiday and I was really interested in seeing that you used to work as a performer at Warner Brothers Movie World. So I want to hear a little bit about that. Yeah, I actually started my career there. I was I was doing an acting degree. Zara and I both attended uh, QUT in Brisbane, which is sort of an acting college, one of the best in the country. Um, Zara finished her degree and she was several years before me. Uh, and I didn't finish mine because Movie World opened and they were looking for full-time performers, and I thought, well, I could be here studying it or I could be down there working it and and paying off my car. So (laughs) I I opted for that, and it was a great year. It was a really awesome year that first year. Um, I learned a lot about myself. I pushed myself in a lot of different ways. I took on roles that I probably didn't really want. You know, I auditioned to be street... uh, 
performer and th- those roles were all filled by the time I got there. In fact, my first audition, they basically said, look, you're great, but we think we've already got a full complement of cast. So I thought I'd missed out on the job and they got me in at very late notice about a week before the park opened and they said, you've got a week to learn everything, go. <laughs> and didn't you get to do a show to Kurt Russell? Yeah, yeah. Well, Hey Hey at Saturday was filming on the opening weekend and they had Clint Eastwood and Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn and lots of big Warner Brothers stars out at the time. And I was working in a place called Movie Magic where they had the Memphis Bell soundstage, if you remember that. I do remember that, yes. Yeah, the Superman stage and then the um, the Foley stage, which was Lethal Weapon, and then Memphis Bell. And because all these other guys had started weeks before me, um, I, I didn't know the script. And come lunchtime, they'd all bug it off for lunch. And I said, look, I really need to keep rehearsing, so I'm going to keep rehearsing. Meanwhile, Hey Hey was filming on the set next to us and um, the, the Memphis Bell set was a huge hangar, if you, if you remember, and it had a gimbal stage with half of a, uh, half of a bomber inside it. and It was you know, quite, quite complex, but for the host of the show, you used to run the show holding the microphone that had a cue button so you could cue all of the lighting effects and all of the sound effects and all of the video clips. And so I was working my way through that, trying to get my head around it. Big dark hangar at the start of the show. The, the start of the show, the whole thing is dark before you begin. And so I'd, I'd got through a couple of times and I was about to start again, went to complete black in the hangar and then the back door of the studio opened and threw light in and I was like, oh, who is this? And I turn around and it's Kurt Russell. And he's just kind of wandered off the set bored and said, hey kid, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm just, um, hello, Mr. Russell, I'm just rehearsing <laughs> my show. Would you like to watch? And he went, yeah, why not? And literally wandered past me, jumped the rail and sat in this audience bank for 400 on his own and went, go for it. <laughs> and uh, so I did my show to him. And then he, at the end, he went, thanks, kid, and wandered back out again. So. <laughs> I imagine that was probably scarier than performing in front of 400 people. Mm. I really enjoyed it. And because it was American accent, too, he went, hey, great accent, too. I love it. You know, so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, creativity, I'm assuming, plays a huge part in your guys' roles. But I'd like to know, rather than the obvious creativity, how else do you utilize that in your life, whether it's work or outside of work? How does creativity influence what you do? Oh, gosh, that's such a hard concept to identify, isn't it? You know, And, and I'd say, uh, full disclosure, that Zara is a far more creative person than me. Well, I think we've got very different focuses. So Troy's very technically creative. He can make things happen, go. He can create, you know, really clever uh, digital results <laughs> You don't creatively. even know what to call them. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He, he makes things go now. Yes. Um, whereas I can't do any of that. And although yeah. I think that it's a survival mechanism in me. I, I think that my creativity is actually born out of desire and need and wanting to create results and wanting to earn money and wanting to deliver value to people. So I think it's it's inherent. It's not something I focus on, but it's something that's my default setting. You know, when something dries up in our life, maybe there's an income stream that uh, is no longer there. Almost instantly, I'm creating a new program in my head. <laughs> you know, I'm sort of going, okay, that's that's stopped. What what else can I create? And I think that's what makes us a good partnership. It just sounds like you guys play off each other so much and there's such a strong bond there. I'd like to know a little bit more about how, I guess, you guys found that spark and that connection and how you maintain that, not only in your personal life, but professionally. Mm. I think we're passionate about people. So, you know, obviously we're passionate about each other, but we're passionate about audiences as well. And I think that makes a real difference is that's always the driver of 
can we deliver great value? Can we have a great response from this audience? That's exciting for us. I think that's yeah. what drives us. Yeah, we're helpaholics. I think you can get a patch for it and it can slowly release small amounts of um, indifference until you don't care enough. But we, we both are certainly carers of people and carers of each other as well. So we got together very quickly. We fell in love very quickly. It was 26 years ago we moved in together very quickly. We were almost married from the first day. You know, mm-hmm. you just – we. We knew that um, we were meant to be together. We're very grateful for our, our life and, and we understand that we've got something special. We're best friends. And we've had some amazing experiences through that, through the many careers that we've had from the live comedy to radio to now working in corporate. You know, that's been a, a vast array of different experiences and all of those, you mm. know, for the most part, good. <laughs> mm. yeah. I, I think it just comes from seeing the good in each other, you know, that... that one of the things that I do, I don't know if you like this, Troy, actually, but um, with with a partner that you're together with 24 hours a day, you know, I'm very not annoying, am I, Troy? I'm very easy to live with. I'm going to say yes. <laughs> See how smart he is. Um, you know, I'm complicated and, and I know that, you know, I would be challenging to live with. And also, Troy's got his ways, you know. Yeah. I, I like to, when I'm going somewhere, I'm ready in two minutes flat, full face of makeup, you know, almost in the car honking, going, let's go. Whereas Troy's methodical. Yeah. Troy likes to take his time. Yep. He needs to have the, however long for a shower. Yep. Yep. He needs to pack up his suitcases. I've checked, uh, you know, I've chosen clothes, but I haven't picked a watch yet. So yeah, come on, slow right. down, slow down. <laughs> that's right. So I could find that annoying <laughs> that, that Troy is like an old poppy and needs time <laughs> to actually get things ready. Or I could find that adorable and, mm. and that's what I choose to do most of the time. And it's a, a flick of the switch that you can make when you're looking at someone in your life to kind of appreciate who they actually are rather than think, well, you need to work to my time frames. So I think if you find someone adorable um, rather than annoying, it's a great place to start. And that's a good mindset for partners and for friends. So true. Yeah. And now you've both worked across radio, TV, you've been published. I guess in terms of pure creativity, do you prefer one or the other? Look, I I would say, I'm going to speak for us now and and say that if we could be doing our dream gig, it would be to be executive producing a TV sitcom. Mm. Right. And we haven't done that yet. show running, owning a show. What sitcoms have inspired you? Bill and Grace, I reckon, would would have to be. I mean, all the the American ones, unfortunately, I don't think there's... Not, there's, there's not many great Australian examples because we just don't have the budget or the audience yeah. um, for that sort of show. But, yeah. we, we don't tend to do sitcom, sitcom in terms of like the four camera, live audience, <laughs> but we love TV shows. I mean, Friends is brilliant. Modern Family is awesome. Uh, Will and Grace was one of our favourite TV sitcoms ever because it pushed the envelope in terms of how people embrace... Um, difference. Difference. Yeah. You know, which is talking about this beautiful gay relationship and it's just such a great show. And I look at things like Parenthood as well, which were um, mm. the, the series as opposed to the movie, which is a Ron Howard piece, um, that uh, was very different in that it was mainly drama but it had a lot of humour and heart mm. in it. Mm. So it was a, that's a great show for me as an example. Yeah, you felt like you were actually in that family. Like when that series ended, you were like, oh, what do I do with my life now? <laughs> Will and Grace are back. I yeah. know. And it's so good. And it's uh, the rhythm's the same and the show's the same and I don't know how they don't look any different 15 years on, those guys. It's incredible. Well, I think you're being a bit kind there, but... Um... Oh, I think they look great. <laughs> they look, well, that's what, what, you know, long-term TV money does for you. Yeah, that's You right. always look good. Tell me a bit about what your sitcom would be. Mm, mm. That's a good question. We actually have about 25 on our list of ideas. <laughs> we do. One of them was about radio, actually. So called Who Listens to the Radio? 
And uh, it was about, you know, you might find this hard to believe and uh, a long bow to draw. Is that the right phrase? Sure. Yeah. Um, but it's about a couple who are married who both get a job on breakfast radio. <laughs> they do say right about what you know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Because like you with this interview show, um, we love interviewing people. It's such a joy to get to the heart of somebody's story. So we'd probably put in a live component of a, a celeb interview every week. Although I've got to say, on radio, as much as we love talking to the celebs and we did, it was actually the real people that that um, we loved talking to the most because they were the most interesting. They had the biggest challenges. They were real people with extraordinary stories and we met so many amazing people. Mm. So I think just anything that allows you to go a little deeper into someone else's story is a, a beautiful space to play. Yeah, that's a big one for me too. I, I mean, like I could listen to people talking about creative stuff for hours, you know, so that that's what I really wanted to do when I started doing this podcast. I'm excited to talk to you guys about everything you've done as well. And is there anything you're more proud of? I mean, you've done TV, so I'd like to hear a little bit about Zuzu and the Super Nuffs. Yeah, um, so we dipped our toe into that world, really. We did a very short form animated series with Matchbox Pictures, and um, they're an extraordinary production company. And it was short form, so it was seen in 90 countries in 16 different languages, but they were five minute episodes. Um, and the goal, the dream would be to be able to turn that into a movie. Uh, and the book, I think when you say, what are you the most proud of? Did you say that or have I just put words in your no, mouth? No, no, yeah, absolutely. I think actually the thing that we're most proud of is our book, What is Enough? What is Enough, yeah. It's in the style of Dr. Zeus. It's full of positive psychology, tools and techniques, but it's a beautiful story. And I have the um, the privilege of being able to recite it live at our conferences. So sitting on stage and doing that for a couple of thousand people and showing the um, the pictures on the big screens and seeing their reactions after it is just extraordinary. And and even better than that, people run up to the stage afterwards with money in their hands. <laughs> Cause, they, because we're not used to having a physical product like that. Really. Yeah, it's so cool. Yeah. And, and they, they don't want to just buy one for them. They buy multiple copies. So they go, I need one for my sister, I need one for my son, I need one for my mum. She's going through stuff at the moment. And it's just one of those books that you'll have in your bookshelf and when somebody in your life needs to hear that they are enough, um, it's the book that you pull out and read to them or give to them. For those who don't know, just tell us a little bit more about how What Is Enough came from and what the message entails. Mm. Yeah, well, it's a shame you can't see the visuals here because the visuals are so gorgeous. But You um, can go to whatisenough.com. I have seen, no, I have definitely seen it. It's fantastic. And I've actually seen your hand-drawn Nuff that it started with. Yeah, well, mm. it came out of when we, we left Breakfast Radio and we were really quite depressed uh, and we weren't sure what we were going to do next. And I was certainly not feeling like I was good enough in the world and that I should have done better and tried harder and found other ways to deal with it and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and I said to Troy one night, if enough was a creature, what would enough look like? And luckily I'm used to weird questions from my wife. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so he pulled out a bit of butcher's paper and he drew the, the fur enough that you got to see, Dean. And he was, um, he was furry and dodgy, had three fingers on his hands, but that was somehow good enough. And we named him Good Enough. And he became our, our mascot. And we kind of thought, you know, as long as we have this enough, we'll always have enough. And uh, then we went about writing the story and it, it comes from the fact that as human beings we all have the same two fears, the fear that we're not good enough and the fear that we won't have enough. And those two fears drive our behaviour. Yeah, absolutely. Drive it positively or negatively. Uh, and so we thought wouldn't it be cool if people could have a story, a magical story that reminded them that they were enough and that they 
are the authors of their own lives. They're writing their story right this very moment. And it's a very empowering story that reminds people of that. So we just, we love it. Yeah, and we thought oh, kids' animation might be a good outlet for that, um, which kind of led to Nickelodeon's Land of Pilot program here in Australia. And we pitched on that. We were a runner-up there. We didn't win. Um, but it taught us a lot more about the process and that there was interest in the idea. And then eventually that led on to the Matchbox partnership. And uh, since that first series, um, we've actually reverted the rights back to us now and we're thinking about what to do next. Yeah, that's right. We start again with it. Which takes me probably into the next bit about advice and advice for other content creators. I mean, you guys seem like there's no challenge big enough for what you want to conquer, but it does play on some people who are trying to get their voice heard do you have any advice for content creators, regardless of where that might be coming from? Yeah, just do it. Make it. Create it. You keep, know? And keep doing it, regardless of what other people say. If it's your passion and your vision, it's okay that it's unique, that your authenticity is your secret, and it's the one thing that can't be replicated. So stick to it. Stick to your guns. And, and question the stories that you're telling yourself about your ability to create something new and magical in this world because I've, I've always believed it's up to you. If I'm, if I'm not creating something in my life and I go through wills where that's certainly the way and um, if I'm not, I, I can't blame another human being or the universe at large. I have to come back to me and that's empowering because if I'm not creating it, then I can create it and it all starts and stops with your thinking and your own self-belief and beyond that, self-acceptance so you've kind of got to uh, trust yourself believe in yourself and then create something put it into action and then judge it you know create something first and then see where it should go uh, but it's it's easy I think a lot of people stay in the conversation phase of what it could be as opposed to actually creating something and then seeing what it is mm. and then taking it somewhere new be in action what about having uh, mentors or creative heroes to inspire you did you have some who are your creative heroes uh i'd say uh ron howard would be a big one ron howard yeah and brian grazer just for their well a very long-term partnership there yeah, 32 yeah. odd years exclusively sticking to their vision not letting anyone else into the company just it's us and we're going to drive this yeah and kind humans you yeah. know we we really love kindness in people and particularly in this day and age it's it's easy to be very me focused or even to you know, through stress and pressure and timeframes and budgets and all that kind of stuff to end up a little cruel. We've certainly experienced some cruelty. Um, but I think kindness goes a long way. And so I, I agree with you, Troy, that Ron Howard, Brian Grazer, are extraordinary human beings that do what they love, make it good for the people around them. Do and, a good job. And do it with heart. Mm. You know, we, in our speaker training, the... the um, the, the speakers that we work with online in our speaker program, we always say speaking's really easy. It's from the heart to the heart. And we all know how to do that. It's really just a conversation that we're having with another human being to uplift them. You know, so I think whatever you do, do it with heart. Yeah, I love that. And speaking of heart, Zara, tell me about your love affair of Dr. Zeus. <laughs> I do love my Zeus. In fact, I'm looking at one right now that I'm going to do for a conference on Thursday, the Snitches which is my favourite, uh, one of my favourite Dr. Zoo stories, um, all about inclusion and diversity. So it's really celebrating the fact that we're all different, um, but in many ways we're all the same. And, and, and Zeus would probably be another mentor in a way. Uh, he was very intelligent. He was another one who had many careers. You know, he's a very successful original madman. You know, he's an advertising exec uh, at the very highest level. He went on to uh, write... Um, for the US military. So he actually worked mm. in propaganda for the US military and then became very anti-war. In fact, H Horton Hears a Who is about the bombing of Hiroshima. 
and Alleged. Person, right. person, no mm. matter how small. Yeah, that's mm. right. Mm. Wanted to remind people just because you don't know them doesn't mean that they don't exist. So he was very political, very subversive in his messaging, but always put entertainment first and foremost in the way that he expressed himself. Yeah, and a great writer and a great drawer as well, like great mm. artist. Mm. Well, our, our house is covered in Dr. Zeus art. In fact, we need more walls. I was going to say, how many artworks do you have? Uh, I think at the last count's about 17. And Too we many. should probably say these aren't originals, obviously. Um, the Art of Dr. Zeus Australia uh, sort of is the outlet for that sort of stuff if you love it. And um, they do beautiful, beautiful full-colour prints of mm. his work. So all of our walls are literally full at the moment. And some of them are his um, adult work as well because there was a whole bunch of art that was sort of sealed off until after his death and it was the art that was more mature and more adult focused, um, which is kind of remarkable too because you didn't know that he did that. Yeah, it has a very different colour palette and a different style. Mm. Mm. And wow. sometimes there's boobies. There are boobies, yes. <laughs> and cats for some reason. There's often mm. cats. Now, you work with lots of big names, obviously sharing the stage with lots of big names. Can you just go through a few of them and who had, I guess, the most profound effect on you one way or another? Well, Zara, I think, nailed it before saying, you know, we did get to talk to a lot of celebrities. That's the curse of commercial radio. So we did people like the Black Eyed Peas, um, Heath Ledger. Branson. Uh, so Rich, yeah. Um, who else? Uh, Matthew McConaughey, mm, David Duchovny. Chris Rock. Um, Destiny's Child, you know, all those sorts of people. But the real people were kind of the most interesting. Although, having said that, I, th I found Heath Ledger to be um, a very interesting human and, and a bit of a sad loss, I think, creatively to the world. Oh, massively, yeah. He, he um, you know, often in Perth when we were on air, we were the last down the line for all stereo for interviews. And so a lot of the celebrities were like, I'll give you five minutes, that's it, you know, the... The promoters would come on and say, you've got five minutes, no more. Because they're 15, you know, interviews in for that morning. Yeah. Every time we did an interview, you know, we could keep them on the air for a good 20 minutes to 30 minutes in a pre-record because they were enjoying the conversation so much. And a lot of the time they didn't know that we were actually, I don't know why they didn't know this, but we were rolling always from the start. And I think, you know, I, I can have a sort of disarming effect on people having a conversation with them. And often you would get very honest responses and very real responses and they almost always ended the interview by going, I love that. That was so cool. Thank you. You know, and so to have them say thank you as a result was, was beautiful. But Heath was one that he kind of stayed for about half an hour and we got political and he told me about his love life and he just shared things that he wouldn't normally comfortably share because... He was he, quite, you know, personal, private. Yeah, he, he's just a fascinating human. Yeah, I want to go into a little bit of creativity leading into happiness. Now, one of them, Troy... You have a, another love affair with David Smith Australia shirts. <laughs> <laughs> and following on from that, you both love colourful hair. Yeah, very true. Is that a part of what you present in your own life, whether it's you know professionally, socially, impacting your mood and trying to impact others? Yeah, I think so. I think life's too short to be boring. So, uh, yeah, when you get onto something that you really like and it works for you, uh, you know, David Smith Australia do beautiful designs. That's a Gold Coast designer. They're all really different. They're all quite bright. Um, so, you know, it's getting, because we have a lot of repeat business with clients, it's getting to the point now where they go, oh, I love that shirt. Or they'll come up to me straight away and go, is it David Smith? Yeah, but David Smith has given him nothing free. No, so I've paid for them. Can we yeah. stop not, promoting him, please? I was going to say, not for lack of trying. No, that's right. <laughs> I know. David Smith Australia. Now, Troy's very loyal, actually. He never wants anything for free. He just likes promoting people and sharing, you know, what they do. But I think you I like to share things that I like. You should bring colour into this world. I mean, our car is a ridiculous purple. It's got this full-on purple wrap and it looks so cool. It's this light purple mm. um, matte 
rap and I watch people respond to it um, on the roads and our number plate is ha ha uh, and I just love watching the responses you know I was literally in the car yesterday and a guy wound the window down we just ended up having a five minute chat at the lights just about the colour <laughs> so what do you do? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah they want to know and I think the hair um, really uh, for us you know I, I posted this week that our hairdresser that we're currently seeing and we started seeing her when we were living in Perth and we were over here doing jobs and things and we needed a hairdresser and, and we've stuck with her through two salons that she worked in and now she has her own so, you know, it's just great to find something that works, whatever that is, and stick with it. I mean, happiness, obviously, we've talked about quite a bit, but I feel it's also grossly underutilised. What's your opinion, I guess, on being happy in what we do, regardless of what that is? Mm. Well, I don't think it's about being happy. So I think that that's the, the first furphy or myth there. I think it's very difficult to wake up on a Monday morning and saying, I will be happy today, and happiness is my goal even though I think it's at the heart and soul of everything that we do or don't do in life. we're looking It drives for, us. Yeah, but mm. I, I think the goal is, as I said before, knowing that you can make yourself happier. Mm. So if you're miserable and you're at a 2 out of 10 on the life scale, you can't go from a 2 to a 10. You can't make that jump. It's too big. And the more you think, God, I'm so miserable and I just want to be happy, the more that divide tends to open up. But if you can kind of have enough self-awareness that you know you're at a 2, um, and you can move yourself from a 2 to a 2.5. What small action can I do? Can I walk around the block? Can I go and have a coffee somewhere that I like? Can I you know, do something that makes me feel a little better? Can I list three things that I'm deeply grateful for in my <laughs> life, three things that I've achieved in my life? And then when I get myself to a 2.5, and this is the important part, it's about looking back and saying, I moved myself from a 2 to a 2.5, so I was in control. I'm the conscious creator of my life. Now that I'm at a 2.5, I wonder if I could go to a 3. Mm. And so it's it's about knowing that you're the, the pilot of this plane. You know, you're, you're leading the way. You always have choices even when it feels like you don't. Yeah. So it's, it's creating that awareness. It's not about circumstance. You know, our, the example we often give is you put two kids on a roller coaster and take a picture. At the critical moment, one squealing with joy, the other screaming in terror. Because actually, happiness is an inside job. It's got nothing to do with what's happening outside of you and everything to do with how you see it, frame it, and your perspective. And now, is that a lack of knowledge or awareness? As you mentioned there about going from a 2 to a 10, I think most people want instant results. Do you know what I mean? I think it's that hard slog to go, okay, well... Slowly but surely, I might get from a two to a three. Is that not enough for some people? I think part of it comes down to sort of how we grow up, actually, because we do a thing that we refer to as the I'll be happy when game. So as a kid, it's I'll be happy when I reach double figures as an actor. Yeah. I'll be happy when I can go to high school. I'll be happy when I can go to that dance on the weekend. I'll be happy when I'll be happy when. And we actually then continue that into adulthood. I'll be happy when I get the promotion or when I get the money or when I get a job that I like or... but. Actually, happiness must precede any specific action or consequence. So you've got to make a choice to be happy and that takes a certain amount of self-awareness to begin with that maybe most people don't get to. Yeah, and we don't, we don't always nail it. Sometimes, you know, it's, it's kind of the analogy is there's always a stress hole or a, you know, a hole that we can throw ourselves in, fall in, and, and the more awareness we have, the more we're able to kind of see the hole up ahead know that there's a potential to want to throw ourselves in it, which is just exhausting because you've got to climb out. You know, now you've got dirt all over you. Um, and with a little more awareness, you can actually see the hole and step over it occasionally, but not always, not mm. always. We're, we're chemical beings as well. So, you know, at the end of our email, it generally says yours in good humour almost always. 
Troy and Zara because we're not always good humoured. Sometimes yeah. we get it really wrong. Sometimes people push our buttons and, you know, you've got to go through that process of healing that, solving that. I don't always get it right, but it's the aim. And what is the epidemic of over-seriousness? Uh, oh, you'll have to see my TED talk to... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> it is everywhere. Yeah, if you Google Zara and TEDx Melbourne, you will actually be able to watch that that presentation. I have watched that. Yes, although I can't watch it because two of the cameras on that day died and the only camera that actually worked was the one that was right below my boob level. So it just looks like <laughs> I have an enormous boobs. But Which I... leads to helpful YouTube comments like, Boobs! <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But it's just that we take ourselves too seriously. And I, I, I find it really difficult to, um, to and, and I do this myself too, so it's not that I don't do it, but I, I find it really difficult to get tangled up in false drama, in, in the pernickety way of seeing the world and worrying about stuff that just doesn't matter that much. Mm. You know, it's, I think we need to save our energy for the big stuff that does matter, you know, the life and death stuff, and the rest of the time... We, we need to handle things lightly with a light heart, a light spirit, um, an energy that uplifts people around us. And I, I find it, I mean, we work in corporate all the time and I find it very difficult to sit in those boardrooms and, and listen to people, you know, talk about things like it's the end of the earth and, and um, just an overly serious approach. And it's misleading because it actually leads to a lack of creativity. Uh, it's almost like having blinkers on and, you know, when we're overly focused or overly worried about something, we kind of, like a horse with blinkers, we cut out all our peripheral possibilities, which is where innovation lies because we're so focused on solving the problem at hand. So the only way to do that is to open our eyes, open our minds, open our hearts, open our spirit to new possibilities when we're overly serious, particularly in non-life and death situations, mm. uh, we squeeze the life out of our life. Yeah, well, it's like um, the difference between capability and seriousness, we think, has kind of been lost in, in corporate Australia. So um, it's assumed that if you're serious, you're capable, but those mm. two things aren't related. You no. can be very capable. In fact, the more capable you are, the less serious you have to be all the time. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So I did watch that TED Talk, by the way, and the next quote that I'm about to read to you, I guess, really resonated with me. Anxiety, guilt and shame is not a sign of weakness, but a sign that you've been too strong for too long. Oh, that's beautiful. Who wrote that? Jeez, I'm a genius. I love that. <laughs> I've forgotten I said that. That's that's amazing. Well, I think we, we you know, feel that like we have to be stoic. The, the one thing we loved about radio was that the more that I and we would share real stories about our losses, our failures, our fears, life. the more it gave people permission to do the same. And we kind of thought if we can have people opening the door, picking up the phone line and sharing their own stories, that it's going to be empowering for the rest of the community. And I think that that's how we learn, that's how we grow, not by looking like we've got it all together, because who does? You know, I know that there's a handful of people that seem to make it all look easy, but I'm certainly not one of those. Uh, so it's really about being real about where you're at. And but one person saying, you know what, I suffer anxiety, and I certainly do. Uh, it can open up the possibilities for someone else to be honest about their experience as well and to see, oh, well, she looks confident and yet she suffers from anxiety. Um, and here she is standing on stage performing uh, to us through that anxiety. Maybe there's more in me as well. Maybe there's more that I get to do as well. But I think being honest, being real. So, yeah, I think that, um, you know, being imperfect and uh, and sharing that is is good for the world. Now you've also said there's a greater meaning to your passion for happiness, but um, 
probably stems from, I guess, darker times. Not that I want to go too much into it, but how have you used those darker times to, I guess, inspire others? Knowing that, as you mentioned before, that you've come through the other side, but you're still a work in progress. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it's. Um, I think a lot of the, my work actually isn't public. It's the, it's the phone calls to friends and family and people in crisis, and they tend to come to me because I'm okay with it you know I I don't sort of crumble in the middle of it and I can have the conversation with them and I think one of my favorite quotes is only those who have suffered are able to save and I, I don't know if it's true I think that you can actually be somebody that can make a big difference in the world and have empathy and understanding for people's fears and losses um without having gone through a, a catastrophe yourself but I think it helps I think that the the more pain you've been through um, the more you're able to see people in pain and they're on my radar, you know, so where most people, uh, I, I don't think I'm a great friend actually. I, I don't like catching up for drinks and coffee and just being a good mate. But <laughs> you're excellent in a crisis for friends. But I'm there in a crisis always. So, you know, and that, that can take weeks or months to help someone through the worst moment in their lives and, and that's where I show up. And um, relating back to, I guess, your, the animation, your series and your book, did this stem from fear, as you mentioned just previously before, about the fear we're not good enough or fear we won't have enough? Was it self-therapy to get that out or was it because of your awareness of others around you that you felt you had to tell that story? Oh, I, I think it just came from deep feelings of self-loathing and not feeling that I was enough or, or always feeling that. You know, and it's not, as I said before, I don't think it's that you ever overcome it. I just think you have tools and ways to navigate it and to dance with that resistance or that fear rather than fight it or struggle with it all the time. Um, and it stemmed from a pure desire for other children, although the book we believe is an adult book, but it stemmed from the desire for other people not to have to waste years of their life doubting their abilities or being tough on themselves or hating their bodies or um, feeling that they just weren't up to being loved or respected by others. And we thought, wouldn't it be cool if you could just start your life knowing that you were enough regardless of how you looked or the size you were or the colour of your skin or how much you knew or didn't know that you were just enough. And if you could work from that basis then what could you create? And really the concept of enough is about deep gratitude. It's about, you know, I, I've only got Vegemite on toast for breakfast because that's all I can afford, but that's enough. You know, it's food, it's something on my plate and, and that's enough for now and things don't have to be perfect. I don't have to know everything, but I know enough to take the next step. Yeah, and again, I guess we come back to action, don't we, and avoiding that analysis paralysis thing of... I, I'm a thinker, uh, therefore I will think and worry about things but not actually mm. achieve anything or get a different result in life. Mm. And sometimes it's fear of risk that does that and sometimes it's because we don't know better. Just getting back into work-life balance, how important is that for you and is it easy enough for you guys to separate the two given how intertwined they are? Mm, <laughs> we're no. probably not great at it. No, we're terrible at it. <laughs> we're terrible at it. Um, and I, I think we're probably better at it but we, we have a, a little bit of a... Um, we, we like holidays, so we're big fans of not just, you know, a big holiday at the end of the year or one in the middle of the year. We like regular holidays and so we kind of like the idea of bringing a holiday spirit into the work that we do as well. So we're in the process currently of just 
moulding our life so that we can do a month or two on, have a week off, month month or two on, have a bit of time off, month or two on, bit of time off. And that seems to work really well for us. Yeah, and with the live events, they can be very intense. Um, so yeah, a couple of weeks ago, we did uh, the Com Games 2018 whole of workforce events. So there's 15,000 staff and we were hosting a show. We did the same show, two-hour show over a weekend, three times to 5,000 people per time. And once the show started, we were on stage for all of it. So you've not only got the week leading up to it where you're talking about the script and the writing and you're getting client approvals and all that back and forth, then the actual performance bit is quite intense. So... Uh, yeah, you kind of come off a weekend like that and feel like you need a week off as well. Mm. Do you have some downtime so the people that are thinking, man, these two seem to be have it so together and be so happy? Do you just have those times where you're like, man, just leave me alone? Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, totally. I I also have um physical issues. So I have chronic pain in my neck, my back. I've got osteoarthritis in my jaw at stage five, which. It means that they want to put a titanium jaw implant in. Yeah, which sadly doesn't make you a Terminator. But it also <coughs> makes smiling... Painful. Painful. Mm. So when I'm working, you know, you, you can't not smile at an audience. But when I'm not working, um, I have to have a very neutral face and I, <laughs> and I have to be very careful of how much I smile and laugh um, because it hurts too much. So I'm on a lot of medication there. But it's um, So, yeah, sometimes we retreat and we're hermits. And you just want your own company. And it's where Troy and I are, are a great couple because the two of us are enough. We can do that together. Yep. Yeah. Um, and then sometimes you're out there and you do what you need to do and you just need some recovery time. So tell me, what does the future hold for Troy and Zara? A uh, new speaker coaching program next year, which will be an online sort of introductory. Zara does a lot of one-on-one professional speaker coaching at the moment. So she's had, uh, I think, last count about 60-plus individual clients that come through and they will spend uh, over three months several sessions with her and she'll focus their keynote if they've already got one or help them write one if they don't and that's been quite amazing you know we've had a lot of incredible stories and, and helped a lot of people along the way and interestingly some of the some of the repeat offenders the, the business that we get again and again are from people who are earning more than a million bucks a year in their speaking careers already they're the ones out there seeking coaching which was I think mm. a great lesson for us too mm. to say even at that high level of the game they're looking for outside support and outside advice and they're so generous you know we don't market anything but it's only our clients that bring us more clients yeah it's all referral so there's not a week that goes by where somebody we're working with isn't going let me introduce you to somebody that you need to know and you know giving us more work which is kind of remarkable so yeah more coaching more storytelling masterclasses. Um, we want to get the enough book out there more because we've really only skimmed the surface currently, so we're about to get that on Amazon. And In the meantime, you can secure your copy at whatisenough.com, and if you use the <laughs> discount code NUFSTER, N-U-F-F-S-T-E-R, you'll even get a discount. Woohoo! <laughs> what about outside of work? Is there any personal challenges, You know, any, any other things for the future that you're uh, looking to conquer? Yeah, we're actually looking at relocating out of Victoria at the moment, so um, that's a big conversation, and uh, uh, you know, a lot of research and trying to find the right place, which we haven't quite yet, but we will. To a warmer climate or where are you? Yeah, to the beach. Yeah, to the beach. It we're going to Queensland. So. Yeah, we're thinking about Queensland. So we're looking at the Goldie, you know, somewhere close to the airport. So but it's all about the cats though because we've got two very high-maintenance pussy cats. And <laughs> no reflection of their owners. That's right. Um, they're <laughs> they're Maine Coons, so they're the biggest domestic breed. And where we are now, we look at the city, like I'm looking at the Melbourne skyline right now, but our balcony is completely netted out because these cats are wild and if they chased a moth, they could just go over the balcony. Yes. So 
on the Gold Coast, you can't net out your balcony. So it's, we're looking for places that are cat-friendly at the moment. Yes. <laughs> back to where it started. You might uh, get back to Warner Brothers Music World there, Troy. Ah. Well, funnily enough, we did a um, corporate gig about three years ago for a, a long-term client of ours that we've had for nine years and 80-plus events. And we found ourselves back at Warner Brothers in the street hosting a, a dinner on the final night. And I actually had to kick off the night by going, I just got to let everyone know this is very strange for me because 24 years ago I was standing on that corner there in front of the bank doing a Bonnie and Clyde show and that was my <laughs> sort of first appearance at Warner Brothers Movie World. Giving a private show to Kurt Russell. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. sound right when you say it. <laughs> All right, a few quick fire questions to finish up with. What are you watching at the moment? Film, TV, online? Ooh, Ooh. that's a good one. We're quite liking The Good Place at the moment, which is a Ted dance and Kristen Bell uh, sitcom it's a half hour uh, that's quite an unusual concept and of course we would watch Game of Thrones every day of the week if we could but they very lazily <laughs> only made seven exactly and now I'm making us wait another 18 months for the next one yeah, yeah I'm really liking the new Star Trek we've been Star Trek mm. fans since the very beginning and another name dropping event back at Crazy's many years ago when I was doing the show there we had a very bad Star Trek sketch and I played Spock in that sketch and after the show one night, I was standing at the bar talking to an American lady who went, I really loved your, your Star Trek take. And I went, oh, that's great. And she said, my husband uh, created Star Trek. And I went, oh, my God, you're Major Barrett, who has been the voice of the computer in every Star Trek ever since. And she went, yeah, that's right. And we chatted. And I went, oh, I can't believe that I did that sketch in front of you. But, yeah. <laughs> well, what's good for you? We always like to know new things. Okay. What am I watching? Uh, Ozark. Was very good. Yeah, yeah, that, that was, was great. Good. Jason that was Bateman's good. awesome. Yeah, I probably watched too many. Oh, actually, no, I'll tell you another one that was really good. David Fincher's series, Mind Hunters. Oh, Ooh, I haven't seen that. No. Right. Um, if you like Zodiac, the movie, it's very much in that style. Okay, good, 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 good tip. And all we've right. just so done uh, all of the Rick and Mortys because we had to finally catch up with a bit of pop culture. So that was great. I, I'm a still a Simpsons fan, to be honest with you. Like, I still love the genius That's great of The Simpsons, mm. which is just consistently yeah. great. And, uh, okay, so what are you listening to? Podcast or music? Yeah, great music podcast that's on twice a week currently that my sister creates. In oh, fact. yes, yes. There's a, a show on Coffee. That's coffeewithak.com.au. Uh, three times a week at the moment called Jams from the Basement. Sarah's mm. sister is, well, she's a copywriter now, but she, in her past life, was an award-winning songwriter and a jazz muso uh, and has oh, wow. done some amazing stuff. Uh, but, yeah, she's cur curating the show, which is very eclectic and, and has artists from all over the world in a very particular style, sort of ranges from jazz to funk to hip-hop, and it's really cool. It's a yeah. great show. So it's introducing us to all of this great new music. We're loving it. Jams from the basement, coffee.com.au. Wow. I'd, actually, I'd love to speak to her if you uh, sure. yeah. don't mind putting through a uh, request for me. That'd be, that sounds great. Well, she's a very creative type as well and has won a Siren Award, which is the international sort of copywriting award before, and, yeah, had, had many, many lives like us. Mm. Awesome. And books. I'm going to assume that you guys are big book readers. Actually, rather than what your books are you reading, what are the books that have greatly influenced your life? Uh, well, Zeus, as we've touched on, has been a, been a big influence and that certainly flavoured our own book, um, What Is Enough? But Zara and I went to dinner this week with um, a producer who worked on the, the Com Game show with us and she very kindly bought a couple of lovely books and they are very us in a way. So I think they're the books that are yet to influence us, yeah. to, to bend your question. Yeah. Um, and we're actually surrounded by psychology books here in the office. So I, I'm a little obsessed with business books and psychology books and anything about the workings of the mind and human relations and how we can do that better. Uh, but she brought us two awesome books. Billy Connolly um, is one of them, Tracks Across America, and it's basically just him 
wandering around America and meeting interesting people in, you know, off the beaten track environments. And the other book she got us was Spike Milligan's The Magical World of Milligan, and it's a kid's book written by Spike Milligan. So we're about to read those. Totally us. Over our Christmas break. So thank you, Belinda Lightfoot. And now with all this taken into account, what do you guys feel is the key to living life on your terms? Do it, be it, don't be scared. <laughs> as simple as that? You are enough. Yeah, I, I, truthfulness actually was the, the word that came into my mind. Authenticity? Well, well, just tell the truth, be your truth. You know, um, say it like it is. There's something about being brave enough to have difficult conversations. You know, I think if I wrote a book, it would be a hashtag stay in the conversation because I see so many people... Um, give up on relationships or say, I don't want that person in my life or I'm never talking to them again. And I think there's a lot can be learnt from being brave enough to have awkward or uncomfortable conversations with the aim of healing and doing that in a diplomatic and real kind of way. So mm. for me, I don't know, there's power in the truth. What about those people who might be in a similar situation to you guys in a job, you know, earning good money, but not happy, but scared to take that step to do something outside that, as in not living on their terms but being scared to chase it? I think you've got you to bring it wherever you are first. So, so you know, the, the rebel in me says, go march right now to the boss, say, thanks so much, I'm out of here, bye, tip over a few desks on the way um, and then just run screaming from the building. Yeah. Uh, but, but the pragmatist? <laughs> but the pragmatist says that you'll just create the same environment somewhere else if you don't shift your thinking first. So yeah. I, I tend to think bring the awesome wherever you are. Just just make a decision to be awesome and bring the awesome and be of value to people and be a, a beacon of light in the world and help them laugh and help them feel good about themselves and then open your mind to what else is possible. So mm. like first you've got to believe that something else is possible yep. um, and then you've got to create it. Good results take discipline, not only the actions, but I think mental discipline of I'm going to choose a better way, I'm worthy of that, You know, whatever it takes, I will get there. But I think the actions of confidence come before the feelings of confidence. That's a that's a Russ Harris quote. Actually, he wrote a great book called The Happiness Trap, uh, and it's a really it's it's a simple one, isn't it? The actions of confidence come before the feelings mm. of confidence. We're all waiting to feel better before we take the step. He says, take the step. You'll be in a new a new place, a new and perspective, you might feel um, and that may help you to feel better in itself. Mm. Well, I think that's a pretty good way to end. But lastly, if you were writing your own bio for this particular podcast, what would it be? Make it as crazy as you like. <laughs> Actually, um, sometimes we, we do conferences and people have, unbeknownst to us, uh, got something from somewhere that we've written previously, which may not necessarily be straight down the line business. Like I was thinking uh, about a week ago, we did a conference and they oh, threw yeah. up our title on a on a screen in a big conference venue that was like, Directors of Humor Australia and Inventors of the Rainbow Unicorn, which was a, a sign-off that we had on email for quite some time. And in fact, it doesn't get better than that, Dean. That's how we would write our bio right now. Directors of Humor Australia and Inventors of the Rainbow Unicorn with yep. a little asterisk, and then the asterisk down further would say, may not be fact. <laughs> Troy, Zara, thank you guys so much. It's been been a pleasure. Awesome. Uh, thank you, Dean. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having us. Thank you, guys. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Tune in to Lifting the Lid next time when we talk to someone else. <laughs>